Well, good evening and a really warm welcome to Theology Condensed. We're beginning a journey this evening, six Sunday evenings at seven o'clock live for about 30 minutes of teaching that will be followed by a brief and an optional Zoom conversation. Now, much of what we're going to be sharing week by week is rooted in a book that's been written by John Mark Comer, who is a speaker, a pastor, an author, a theologian based in the US. And his book is called God Has a Name. I thoroughly commend you get hold of a copy. Superb book. And as we journey through these sessions week by week, you may want to scribble down a few thoughts or a few notes or a few comments so that if you do join us in the Zoom conversation afterwards, you can pick up on them. You will find the link for the Zoom conversation in the chat, so just scroll back. We'll post it again towards the end as well. And when we get to the end of this session, just click the button. It will take you straight into Zoom, and you'll find our smiley faces there waiting to engage in a discussion with you. Well, when we talk about God, it turns out that we all have different ideas about what God means and who God is. If you don't believe me, initiate a chat with your non-Christian friends and you'll very quickly discover that their conception of God will differ quite dramatically to yours. If you get into a deep and meaningful conversation, even with your Christian friends, you'll find too that to a larger or a greater or lesser extent, you have exactly the same problem. Of course, in the West, our conception of God is mostly influenced by our Christianized past. But there was a time in our history when you could say God, and most people would immediately think of the God that we, that's Christians, read about in the scriptures and find out about in the person of Jesus. In the past, most people would come to the same basic conclusions about this God, and those conclusions would not be greatly at odds with uh, the conclusions that you or I have drawn. But now we have baby boomers and Generation X, Millennials and Generation Z to name, but a few of the labels. And each of those different groupings see the world and they conceive God through a dramatically different pair of spectacles. During our theology condensed sessions, we'll basically be wrestling with two questions that theologians wrestle with all the time. Who is God? And then secondly, so what? Who is God and so what? Is God a he or a she? Is God a they or an it? Is God even a person? Is God an energy, a force, a state of mind? Is God even just a myth that we ought to have evolved out of by now? Is God kind? Is he cruel? Is he a lover? Is he a hater? Is God close or is he out there and is he aloof? Is God even good for the world anymore? Does God just cause more trouble than good? Who is this God that we love, we hate, we worship, we blaspheme? We trust, we fear, we believe in, we doubt, we bow down to, we make jokes about, and all too many people simply ignore. And anyway, what difference do our conclusions make to everyday life? So what? Well, as we'll discover together, the answer to the who is God and so what questions are really significant. The 20th century writer A.W. Tozer made a stunning claim He said this, what comes to our minds when we think about God is the single most important thing about us. What a claim. What comes to minds when we think about God is the single most important thing about us. More than our gender, our sexuality, our ethnicity, our family, or the town where we grew up, what we think about God is the most important thing about us. Why? Because we we become what we worship. 
we become what we worship. Well, Tozer went on to write, we tend by a secret law of the soul, he said, to move towards our mental image of God. Were we able to extract from any human a complete answer to the question, what comes to mind when you think about God, we might then predict with certainty the spiritual future of that human. In other words, if you believe that God is homophobic, if you believe that God is racist and that God is mad at the world, then this distorted vision of reality will shape you into a person who is, guess what, homophobic, racist, and mad at the world. If you don't believe me, look up examples like Westboro Baptist Church in the US. Of course, the, the flip side of the coin is also true. If the God that we've come to know and love is loving, kind, and gracious, and compassionate, then so will you or I become. Who God is has profound implications for who we are. Now, here's the problem. We usually end up with a God who looks an awful lot like us. There's a human bent within us, isn't there, to make God in our own image, despite the fact we read over and over again in Scripture, particularly in Genesis 1 and 2, that we're made in his image. Can you see the problem with this theological approach to life? God ends up getting watered down or morphed into someone or something that he simply is not. But what if the God that we've crafted into our own image is nothing like the God who is actually described in the Scriptures? What if God's character, which is mostly a reflection of who we see in the mirror, is not actually what we've always imagined it to be? In other words, we've got it wrong. Now, we've called these six sessions theology condensed, and sound theology, or words about God, we might say, is incredibly important, because without it, we can end up developing all sorts of wonky ideas about who God is. Sound theology causes us to keep on checking over and over that we've gotten God right. So the best theological thinking starts not with us and our opinion, but actually it begins with God as he's seen through the lens of Scripture and in the person of Jesus himself. Now, Scripture is first and foremost a story. It's a story about God and about how that God relates to us as people. As the story is told in scriptures, there are these kind of mountaintop moments where, if you like, the door swings wide open and we end up with a brand new, a compelling, and sometimes a terrifying vision of who God is. In Exodus chapter 33, the chapter that's before the one that is uh, our anchor verse for theology condensed in chapter 34, in chapter 33 of Exodus, we get to eavesdrop on a conversation that goes on between Moses and God. Basically here, Moses is asking God to go with the Israelites every single step of the way. Not a bad thing to ask. And then at one point, he says, in fact, he demands, now show me your glory. Basically, Moses has hit this point in his relationship with God where he's discovered that his head knowledge about God isn't enough. He's effectively saying to God, God, would you allow me to experience your presence in a new way, in a different way? Now, I think that's a very brave and yet a very exciting prayer, a prayer that maybe we should pray more often. Moses is asking God to see God for who he really is, to see God in person or at least in some tangible, comprehensible, relational form. Now, God's very gracious to Moses here. He says, Moses, you can't see my face because if you see my face, then you'll drop dead. But God does say this to him. 
This is Exodus 33, verse 19. He says, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord Yahweh, in your presence. I will proclaim my name, the Lord Yahweh, in your presence. So we discover here that God has a name, Yahweh. Well, you might recall what happens the next morning. Moses gets up really early. He climbs up to the top of Mount Sinai. And then we read one of the most staggering paragraphs in the entire Bible. Exodus chapter 34, verses 5 to 7, the verses we're going to be looking at for the next six weeks. It says this, The Lord Yahweh came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord Yahweh. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord Yahweh, the Lord Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth generation. Here in Exodus 34, God is fulfilling that promise that he made back in Exodus 33, that he would reveal his glory, reveal something of himself to Moses. Now, this is one of those watershed moments in Scripture which changes absolutely everything with humankind's relationship with God. It's one of the few places in the Bible where God actually describes himself. God is essentially saying here, look, my name is Yahweh, and because that's my name, this is what I'm like. My name's Yahweh, and because my name is Yahweh, this is what I'm like. Now, this moment is groundbreaking in the history of the world. And that's why Exodus 34, verses 6 to 7, is quite possibly the most quoted passage in the Bible by the Bible. Biblical writers circle back to this passage over and over and over and over again. And we can be sure that if they're doing that, it's because God knows it contains some rich stuff that he really doesn't want us to miss. Moses, David, Jeremiah, Jonah, Paul, all of them quote from these verses. They allude to it, they pray about it, and David sang about it. But most importantly, in all that they say about these verses, it's really obvious that they believe what these verses said. It's obvious that they've taken on board God's description of himself and made that their theology. Now, stacks of other places also allude back to these verses in Exodus, and we'll pick out some of them in the weeks to come. So if we were able to condense all of our theology, all of our words, all of our thinking about God into just two or three verses of Scripture, now, of course, we can't do that, but if we could do that, Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, is arguably the place to begin. And for the next six weeks, we're going to see how God describes himself here line by line. And the first thing we discover is that God has a name. And it's not God, and it's not even Lord, it's Yahweh. God states this in Exodus chapter 33, and then he repeats his name multiple times in Exodus 34 in this dialogue with Moses. Now, most English translations of the Bible swap out the word Yahweh for the word Lord, which is always written in capital letters. Now, to me, Lord sounds less like a name, and it sounds more like a title. Sir, Doctor, Reverend, Lord, and, and so on. 
Now, in the preface of most Bibles, the translators explain their reason for doing this. And it's all pretty technical stuff to do with tetragrammation. But for simple people like me, perhaps it's enough to know that they've done it because the word Yahweh, which was originally written without any vowels, Y-H-W-H, was considered such a sacred name that the Jews dare not speak out in full for fear of using God's name in vain. So instead of using God's personal name, Yahweh, they adopted the practice of reading his name as Adonai, which is the Hebrew word for, you guessed it, Lord. To get the name Jehovah or Yehovah, which some of us would have said was God's personal name, pronounced with a Y and not with a J despite its spelling, you take the O and the A and the A from Adonai and you put them between the consonants in the tetragram written Y-H-W-H and so what you discover is Yehovah is a fusion of Yahweh and Adonai. Anyway, the fact that God has a name Yahweh is much more important than most of us perhaps have realized. In fact, this knowledge, I think, has the potential to radically change the way that we relate to our God. You'll probably know that in ancient writings like the Bible, names are really important because they reveal the nature of a person. Think of the story that we've been thinking about over recent weeks, back in the summer, the story of Abraham. Originally, he's just called Abram, but then Yahweh makes him a promise that he's going to be the father of a great nation. And then God renames him. Abram becomes Abraham. Abraham means, or Abram rather, means exalted father. Abraham means father of many nations. You see, for Abraham, this is more than just a new label. This is a new identity. This is his new destiny. And his name simply reflects that new character. And we see the significance of names repeated throughout the scriptures. In biblical times, you didn't just pick a name because you you liked the sound of it. I guess that's how most of us chose the names of our children. Certainly, that's where we began. But in biblical times, you picked up a name because it communicated something much deeper about your hopes and your dreams and even the promised destiny of the child. The scriptures are littered with name changes, and names are always given for exactly this reason, for better or sometimes for worse. In a sense, names were your autobiography in one word. Now, I wonder what would your name be if it were to change? Or I wonder perhaps does even the meaning of your current name do your character justice? Well, my real name is Christopher, which means Christ-bearer. I'll go with that. Um, I'm not sure it's why my parents gave me the name, but I'm quite happy to have my character described as being a Christ-bearer. So when Moses is here on Mount Sinai asking to see God's glory, God says to him, I will proclaim my name, the Lord Yahweh, in your presence. And by saying this, God is stating that he's going to reveal his real identity and his character to Moses. In other words, in this moment, God is going to let Moses in on his inner godness, we might say. He's going to let Moses in on the deepest reality of his being. Can you see the significance of this whole name thing in Hebrew thinking? It's quite different to our contemporary way of thinking here in the West, isn't it? Today, if I proclaim my name as Christopher in your presence, most of you will just think I'm a complete nutter and I'm overstating it. Bolting on my title probably wouldn't help you either. My name is Reverend Christopher John B.A. Ons M.A. Cycling Proficiency. But to a Hebrew listener... They would hear my name Christopher and they would zone in on that. The titles wouldn't matter much at all 
because that would be a revelation about my identity or my character. It would be a revelation that I'm a Christ bearer. Now, I guess if you were told that in Hebrew thinking, you'd probably have a few more questions for me if I introduce myself to you. Now, we could get really technical at this point about Hebrew language syntax, but the key learning point is this. When God told Moses his name Yahweh, he didn't invite Moses to know him through a title like Dr. Sir, Reverend, or Lord, but instead gave him a new name or gave him a name which is a way of inviting intimacy and relationship with God. And I just wonder how many of us have really and truly deeply grasped that in our understanding of God. In a sense, most modern Bible translations don't help us, do they, by swapping out the name Yahweh for what we might perceive to be a title being Lord. But think about your own relationship with God for just a moment. We spend an awful lot of time speaking about God as our Lord or as our master or as the creator and so on. And there's nothing wrong with that because that's exactly who God is. But more than that, more than a title, God longs to be known by his name. In other words, he longs to be known by his character. And I wonder if sometimes by constantly referring to to God as Lord in this way, that actually we're missing out on a relationship of greater intimacy, either consciously or maybe even subconsciously. What if we're invited, like Moses was, to relate to God in a much more intimate way? Not just with our heads, but with our hearts. Not just as Lord, but as friend. Not just as creator, but as companion. Not just by means of clever doctrine, but actually with a relational depth. Wouldn't this start to radically change the nature of our relationship with God? Now, of course, this is how Jesus related to his father, but Jesus actually took all of this teaching one step further. He taught us, that's you and me, to call God father or daddy or Abba, the most intimate relational relational name that there is. And Jesus was saying, look, this isn't just for me. He's my daddy. He's my Abba. But actually, this is for everyone who will come into a relationship with God through him. Jesus longed, you see, that we would know God with the relational intimacy which he knew God. In his biography of Jesus, the New Testament writer John makes this really profound statement in John 1.14, words many of us will know well. He says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. Now, it's quite hard to see this in the English translation, but um, these words are straight out of Exodus chapter 34. For example, the phrase, made his dwelling amongst us, is quite literally that he pitched his tabernacle amongst us. Reference to the, the tabernacle or the tent that Israel put up at the base of Sinai. Well, what about glory? Well, that's reference to the cloud at the top of Mount Sinai. What about grace and truth? Well, that's actually quite an odd reading of a Hebrew phrase that's translated as love and faithfulness. We'll talk about that more in future sessions. You see, John is taking all of this language from Exodus, tabernacle and glory and love and faithfulness, as a way of relating this story at Sinai all around Jesus. He's making the point that in Jesus, we see the creator God's glory. In Jesus, Yahweh comes in human um, form. Now, later in John, we get to eavesdrop on Jesus' prayer to the Father. 
And he says this, I've revealed your name to those that you gave me. I have made your name known to them. Now remember that God's name is a stand-in for his character. In the message version of the Bible, Jesus' words are put this way. He says, I've spelled out your character in detail. In Jesus, we get this new crystal clear glimpse of um, what God is actually like. But two, we get a further affirmation of how we're called to relate to God. Not as a God who's aloof, but as a God who's close. You know, for years, I thought that Yahweh in the Old Testament was parallel with, but not the same as the Father in the New Testament. For me, there was always this kind of disconnect. I didn't understand the whole concept of the Trinity, which didn't help. But actually, that kind of thinking leads to this twisted caricature of the Father as being this grumpy old warmonger in the Old Testament. But then suddenly, when we get to the New Testament, Jesus the Son has come along, and he somehow taught his Father how to be full of grace and tolerance in the New Testament. You see, Jesus the Son is the long-awaited human coming of Yahweh, the God who was on top of Sinai. Well, so what, you might be thinking, and it's important that we wrestle with that question. Well, I think all of this has staggering implications for how we relate to God. For starters, all this means that God is a person. Now, by a person, I don't mean that he's male or female or human. By a person, I mean that God is a relational being. God is more than just an impersonal energy force. He's a relational being who longs to relate to people like you and me. He's a being who longs to be known and to be known. But knowing God isn't just about knowing a bunch of facts in our head about God. He's a person who wants to be in relationship with you and with me. Do you remember how Moses and God used to have conversations Well, later on in the story, we read that God would speak to Moses. It says in Scripture, face to face as one speaks to a friend. God and Moses relate to one another like friends. Now, this isn't how you would expect a conversation between the creator of the universe and a human being to go, but that seems to be how the relationship does go between God and Moses. It's like two friends talking. Now, of course, the relationship is much more than that too. God is still Lord to Moses, but he's more than an abstract, aloof being. There's an ongoing relational, almost friendship element between between the two of them. There are even stories captured in Exodus of Moses talking God out of disaster on his people in the way that God had proposed. And God ends up changing his mind as a direct consequence because of his dialogue and his friendship with Moses. And you know, all of this leads to a God, a vision of a God who responds as a consequence of the relationship that he enjoys with us. But that said, there is still a pattern that we see repeated throughout the Bible. It's the, if you blank, then I will blank pattern. For example, Jeremiah 18, verses 7 to 10, you can see these words on your screen. It says, if at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down and destroyed, and if that nation I warn repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. And if at another time I announce that a nation or a kingdom is to be built up and planted, and if it does, not, uh, does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good I had intended for it. Do you see this pattern? It's repeated throughout Scripture, the, the if-then pattern. 
But the thing I want to point out from this is notice how interactive it is. There's this kind of relational back and forth that few of us probably have ever come to grips with in our own walk with God. There's this back and forth which is we speak and God speaks and vice versa. There's this pattern which is we act and then God acts. We pray and God answers, not always the way we want, but he does do that. We ask God to show mercy and he sometimes relents. Now it's important that we recognize this isn't some kind of magical formula, but it is a way of living and breathing and engaging in a relationship with God. He's the God who responds, and what we discover from Scripture is he is the God who can also be moved because of that relationship. When we read the story about Moses getting God to change his mind, it sounds really shocking, doesn't it? And it, it, and it can so often be so far from our experience. But as I read the Bible, especially the Psalms, it seems to me that God really delights in that kind of raw, uncut prayer relationship where I tell God exactly what I think and feel. He's not nearly as scared of honesty as perhaps we are. Maybe sometimes we're just too British, too polite in our dialoguing with God. But God loves that relationship which is honest. Well, next Sunday evening, we're going to talk a bit more about this whole idea and unpack it some more. But I think the implications of this are that the prayers that we pray and the decisions that we make, in a sense, have this direct line of sight effect on what God does or does not do um, as things happen down the line. Now, here's the temptation. We read the stories of people like Moses and David and Paul, and we think for themselves that was for them and that was about their relationship with God. It's not for me. But Jesus came and he lived and he died and he rose from the grave to make the kind of relationship that he and Moses had with Yahweh available to everybody. In fact, Jesus goes that one step further. You can call my daddy, daddy too. Wow. My daddy, you can call daddy too. Right before his death, Jesus prays to the Father, I have made known your name to them, and I will continue to make your name known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. You see, this was Jesus' agenda for his followers, that you and I would know Yahweh in the way that he did, not just by name, not by a title, but by his character and by his identity. Think for a moment about how that could rewire the way that you and I pray. Think for a moment about how that could radically change the way that you and I relate to God in our prayer lives. Of course, this way of praying is not about turning God into some kind of genie in a bottle who's there to meet our every wish. That's a pretty repulsive idea of who God is. We, of course, still have to pray in line with his character. We still have to pray for what God wants to happen in the world. But two, when we pray in Jesus' name, it means that whenever we pray, we have exactly the same intimate access to God that Jesus has. Now, of course, we do that in a broken, sinful kind of way. Jesus didn't. Our relationship with God is going to be inhibited. But that's what we're invited to, to experience a relationship with God that Jesus experienced with him. We come not as a beggar, but we come as a son or a daughter of a father We come as a son or a daughter of um, the one who Jesus says we can call daddy. We come as a son or a daughter into relationship with the one who enjoys friendship with those who he has created. So here's my closing question. What are you waiting for? Yahweh wants to relate to you and he wants to relate for me 
and he's waiting for us. We don't even have to climb a mountain. All we have to do is open our lips.